Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. Welcome to the talkie bit. Partly what I was referring to a moment ago in our conversation was the occasion I had this week to have my YouTube feed pop up this, this very earnest Christian leadership podcaster. And if I could uh, personify the algorithm that made that choice and take it out for coffee, I think I would want to do two things. I would want to inquire how they came to the conclusion that I might find such a podcaster interesting, and I would want to disabuse them of that delusion. (laughs) Now, having said that, I was curious enough to give it a few minutes of my time because of the topic, and also because I don't think it's especially healthy to live in a self-reinforcing bubble, even if it is more pleasant. So maybe in the end, you know, the algorithm actually knows me better than I would like to acknowledge. What I experienced in those few minutes, and I get that I might be hanging quite a lot on not much here, was that I felt like I was sort of abruptly dropped into a world that I recognized, but that I no longer live in. And it's a world in which the cornerstone conviction is we are the holders of right belief, of the truth, and even we might disagree internally about the nuances, but we've got this. This is the thing. And it wasn't so much stated as assumed to be the case, which I personally found more disturbing, considerably more disturbing, than if somebody had just come right out and said it. Here's our paradigm. But, of course, it doesn't get said. It gets assumed, right? What I did find interesting was that the podcaster's guest, and this is all in an American context, which matters because there's some statistics waiting in the wings, their guest on this particular episode was someone who was on about data supporting trends in church growth, which is where that uh, story I referenced earlier came from, or in this case, the opposite of church growth, which this guest uh, in, their, in their sort of data set is calling de-churching. I didn't find most of what they were talking about especially relevant to the table, not only because we're not in America, but because we wouldn't, we wouldn't even meet their definition of church that they were using to surveil the data, um, sort of see above, re-corner on right belief. The reason I found it interesting is because there's a lot of anecdotal info about that topic out there. I've referenced some of it in these talky bits, and it's interesting to me from the perspective of paying attention to history especially as that might inform our imagination about the future, which we're going to explore in more in-depth in another talkie bit. But in any case, I hadn't heard anybody pull the stats together quite like this before. So here's the short version. America is in the midst of the largest, fastest shift in people being part of the church in its history. So again, all these definitions are as used by the folks gathering this data. And I thought it was somewhat telling that both the host and the guest simply called America our country. Not unusual use of language uh, in that context, but they were assuming in their conversation that the history of this country, including its spiritual history, essentially began with the arrival of Christianity, with the so-called founding fathers, the Constitution, and so on. Whatever happened before that in terms of who was there, what they believed, not considered to be relative statistics about belief 
or spirituality, right? It's just, just not only, nobody's commenting on it. It's just not on the radar. It's not included. So that's a bit of context. In that context, the summary of the stats is that the previous largest shift in American religion was in the 25 to 30 years post-Civil War, uh, post-Civil War when the Christian church, as defined by these researchers, experienced incredibly rapid growth in the U.S., either from folks coming back to church after the war or coming to that institution for the first time. So that's, there was this explosion of, of growth. However, we are now in the midst of a larger, faster shift in the history of that institution. And here's the data. In summary, in the last 25 to 30 years, so near the near history of 25 to 30 years to, to the current date, over 40 million people have left the church in America. And that is larger than the growth stats post-Civil War by a factor of 1.25, but in the opposite direction. So from a statistical point of view, that's enormous. So if it's trends in Christian religion that you're measuring, that's a pretty provocative statistic. And of course, at this point, we could, we could simply shrug. We could conclude that this all might be vaguely interesting if you're someone trying to preserve that institution, and we could move on. Many of us in this room probably meet the criteria, and we're here, meet the criteria for having left as defined by the study in any case, because their, their statistic for when someone has left the church is when they're showing up less than once a month in the building. <laughs> right, so, you know, that's, you're, you're gone statistically at that point as far as they're concerned. However, I think there is, having said all of that, there's this intersection here with a wider human tendency that I think does have some relevance, maybe quite a lot of relevance, to what we've been exploring these past few weeks as a community. As a species, we are meaning makers. We don't find it easy to step away from the drive to ask what does that mean about whatever it is that we're encountering or experiencing or thinking about. And in this community, in our talking bit conversations, we've been exploring questions surrounding possible meanings for rest in particular, including seeing it as a disruption of things in our prevailing culture that are toxic, seeing it as a resistance movement in which we can learn to take back ourselves from narratives and structures that say we only have value based on our outputs or how much labor we can bear, and as a way to demonstrate things, actively enact things like love, community, divinity, those kind of ideas. And in the process of that exploration, one of the themes that has come up over and over again is the importance of imagination and the relationship between rest and imagination. And uh, here I want to turn to what might seem like a bit of an unlikely source. Uh, Stephen King. Yes, that's Stephen King, the so-called king of horror, the author of supernatural fiction, suspense, crime, science fiction, fantasy novels. Many years ago, King wrote a book uh, called On Writing a Memoir of the Craft that I read when it was a fairly fresh work of his. And I remember being struck at the time by a couple of things, but the one that I carried away most sort of acutely in my memory was King's vigorous aversion to adjectives. (laughs) He just has very little use for adjectives for writers. He's like, if you can't describe it, so much that I'm feeling it. You have to resort to adjectives. Like you're kind of you're kind of lame. You know, he's pretty hard on them. So that was interesting to me. I remember thinking, well, really? Anyway, that was the thing. What I didn't remember is that he also has quite an interesting take on the relationship between rest and imagination in that book. He says it this way: "Quote in both writing and sleeping." So he's he's speaking of rest in particular as sleep in this quote. In both writing and sleeping, we learn to be physically still, 
At the same time, we are encouraging our minds to unlock from the humdrum rational thinking of our daytime lives. And as your mind and body grow accustomed to a certain amount of sleep each night, six hours, seven, maybe the recommended eight, so you can train your waking mind to sleep creatively and work out the vividly imagined waking dreams, which are successful works of fiction. He's writing about writing, obviously, right? That's his context. Now, at first pass, when I kind of read that, I thought it kind of sounds like he's only talking to writers of what he calls works of fiction. But if you read further, you realize he's actually talking about something that we could call world-making, which, of course, is deeply entwined with meaning-making. And speaking of the importance of getting rid of distractions, in a couple paragraphs later in that same section, he says this. When you write, you want to get rid of the world, don't you? Of course you do. When you're writing, you're creating your own worlds. When we're talking about resisting what is not good or not right in the world, when we're talking about trying to think of how to live or be differently, we are often talking about creating a world that doesn't exist at the moment. The raw material? Absolutely. That's all around us. That's our context, right? We are, we are in culture as fish are in water. We take our life from it. We're surrounded by it, but we are not it. We make it. Sort of like it is for the writer of fiction. It starts with what we have access to. But in both instances, what we're trying to do is make a world that doesn't exist yet, or at least not in the shape that we imagine it. That's what we're on about. That's our task. And that kind of work requires that we find ways to as King says so eloquently, encourage our minds to unlock from the humdrum rational thinking of our daytime lives in order to imagine something different, something better. If, uh, if you were able to be part of our discussion last week, you might remember that someone in the community was talking about a mental health professional whose name I can't recall, my apologies, but this was a person who liked to talk about all the chronically normal people in the world. I think, I think Heidi said Patricia Deacon. Patricia Deacon. Thank you, Horst. So that's, that's the person. I haven't been able to get that phrase, though, out of my head. Chronically normal. Chronically normal is not a compliment. <laughs> in, case we, in case we missed it, right? And it's not an endorsement of normal. And you might also recall a couple of weeks ago I offered a list of questions that included this. Are the ways that I'm living under with capitalism normal for a human being? It was one of a, a larger list of questions that I that I offered for our consideration. Now, we might not feel as strongly as Trisha Hersey, who generated that, that question about capitalism. We might not feel as strongly as Hersey does that capitalism is the problem, along with patriarchy in, in her paradigm. But even if we don't feel that it's strongly about those particulars, we can adjust that kind of a question to embrace the wider culture. So we can ask ourselves a question like, is the way my surrounding culture assumes humans should live normal for a human being? Is the way that my surrounding culture assumes humans should live normal for a human being? And of course, we're, now we could just get right into the weeds of how we define normal, right? I'm going to leave that aside for now, knowing that it's a real part of the equation here. Or, in contrast to a question like that, have we simply been told so often and so insistently that what we're surrounded by is normal that we've stopped questioning it? That's the kind of thing that feeds into the notion of chronically normal. The devil we know. It's normal. It's how it is. It's how the world works. If we do find a way to question those things, even for a few minutes, to free our imaginations to consider another way of life, another way of living, another way of being, what might we do 
with the ideas that come from such a moment, from our daydreaming, from our rest. I want to turn here to another writer that's been quite influential in my life. Our second oldest, Kale, is a writer. Uh, they're a poet, a novelist, someone who also teaches kids how to write in terms of a you know, day job that pays better than publishing Canadian poetry. <laughs> yeah. Twelve journals, and he couldn't have paid for my coffee, I don't think, this morning. But it's, it's not about that. I get that. But Kale's a writer by, by vocation. That's, the, that's what calls out to them in life, and they structured their life so that they can be a writer. They, they take it seriously. It's their craft. And several years ago, and so they read thoughtfully, and a great deal. So several years ago, um, Kale lent me Octavia E. Butler's novel, Parable of the Sower, which if, if you have not read it, I, I cannot commend it highly enough. I was so moved by that novel that Kale, not a wealthy person, bought me my own copy, sensing uh, correctly, I suspect, that if they didn't, they would never get theirs back, ever. And so the parable of the sower is about, among other things, the way you start something new when the world around you is collapsing, is ceasing to function. It's a, it's a not post-apocalyptic novel, but a mid-apocalyptic novel. In many ways, it is, among other things, a brilliant examination of how you start a religion. It's, it's really insightful and, and quite lovely about those things. It's set in the near future in the USA. It's set in a disconcertingly recognizable contemporary world. And Butler tells the story about an exchange she had with a young writer who attended a book signing for that book. And so I'll just read you the way she tells that story. So, do you really believe that in the future we're going to have the kind of trouble you write about in your books... A student asked me as I was signing books after a talk. The young man was referring to the troubles I described in Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, novels that take place in a near future of increasing drug addiction and illiteracy marked by the popularity of prisons and the unpopularity of public schools, the vast and growing gap between the rich and everyone else, and the whole nasty family of problems brought on by global warming. I don't make up the problems, I pointed out. All I did... Or rather, I didn't make up the problems, I pointed out. All I did was look around at the problems we're neglecting now and give them about 30 years to grow into full-fledged disasters. Okay, the young man challenged. So what's the answer? There isn't one, I told him. No answer? You mean we're just doomed? He smiled as though he thought this might be a joke. No, I said. I mean, there's no single answer that will solve all our future problems. There's no magic bullet. Instead, there are thousands of answers. At least, you can be one of them if you choose to be. She goes on to say that shortly after that conversation, this young writer publishes a piece in his college newspaper in which he correctly quotes her as answering his question about what the answer is by saying, there isn't one. So he quotes her as saying that's her response. But he neglects to quote the part where she challenges him to be part of the answer. And then she goes on to say this. It's sadly easy to reverse meaning, in fact, to tell a lie by offering an accurate but incomplete quote. In this case, it was frustrating because the one thing that I and my main characters never do when contemplating the future is give up hope. In fact, the very act of trying to look ahead to discern possibilities and offer warnings is in itself an act of Which brings us back to our exploration of the importance of rest in the process of imagining a different future. Just that act, says Butler, the very act of trying to look ahead to discern possibilities and, act and offer warnings is an act of hope. How so? 
Well, if you think about it for a moment, without hope, why would we bother with either of those activities? Why would we bother with trying to discern possibilities? Why would we bother with offering warnings? We would just we would just give up. We would stop pushing on the chronically normal. We would just let things unfold as they unfold. We would resign ourselves to the chronically normal. Looking ahead takes imagination. And imagination has to be nurtured and given time and space to do its work. And one of the consistently fruitful spaces in which imagination can do its work is that of rest. It's not the only one, but it's a biggie. Hersey says it like this. We underestimate imagination, belittle it as a waste of time, a thing done by frivolous children, and constantly push the false idea that imagination does nothing but allow a moment of escapism in a harsh and cruel world. We use this same perspective when we think about rest. The imagination I am uplifting is not about escapism, although I find escapism to have a powerful place, especially in the lives of oppressed people. This imagination work allows individuals to be able to see what is possible. Everything, and if you don't hear anything else in the midst of all of these words, listen to this. Everything we see on earth today, all the systems we are living under, were created by someone. They didn't exist until people sat down and imagined a way to make sense of their world. No ex nihilo, no from nothing when it comes to culture. We make it. She goes on to say this. We too have the right to build and reimagine our world. We must begin the steady process of testing our possibilities. What can a rested world look like? What could a world where capitalism doesn't exist be like? What if poverty was no longer created? What could we imagine as alternatives to the toxic individualism that is leading us to collective death? Our imagination has the power to tap into other worlds. We must fight for it. We must envision it. We must see clearly first. We must see things clearly first before they can be. That's where it starts, right? It's with imagination. And my original sort of notes about this talky bit, that's where I stopped. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good last sentence, right? I think Percy gave us a good handle to walk out of the room with. We must see things clearly first before they can be. You could fit that on the back of a mental business card, right? But somehow I felt, I felt restless with it because of the wider history that I know many of us in the community share where, where this idea has been rejigged in a way that I think makes it too small, which might seem odd given that it's often rejigged in a way that then points you toward a thing called faith as though it was sort of a panacea for all of this, right? But if you grew up around people that quoted Bible verses, you might remember this one, where there is no vision, the people perish. Familiar text. That's a King James version of a familiar text. Uh, it's an ancient Hebrew proverb. And as is the case with many of those sayings, it exists to help. Its original context was it was there to help a group of people, a nation, in this case a beleaguered, oppressed nation, come to some sort of shared understanding of who they are and what sort of enduring teachings would help them define themselves and guide their behavior. So there's a lot lurking in the background of that little proverb, if you look at the whole proverb. And, and that's because, as is often also the case, this quote, as tidy as it is, where there's no vision that people perish, you can make a sermon out of that one in five minutes flat, it's only half the proverb. 
kind of kind of the nice half, you know, like the, the easier to work with half. The second half is way more problematic. The second half, in some translation or other, is some version or other of study the law you have. So if we looked up this particular quote in an Orthodox Jewish Bible, for example, an Orthodox Jewish uh, collection of Old Testament texts and from the from the Protestant perspective, in this case, it would say, study the Torah. It would actually be the translation. We would study the law, right? Study what you've got in terms of wisdom. Dig in. And, and actually, and it often ends with some version or other, depending how it's translated of, and then you'll be happy, <laughs> right? You'll, you'll cohere as a people, because that's the mission. The shape of the proverb makes it pretty clear that from the perspective of the writer... As human beings, in that context, the people need two things to thrive. The first is some kind of picture of the future, right? Some version of what Octavia Butler is talking about when she speaks of the very act of trying to look ahead to discern possibilities. We can call that vision. We can call it lots of different things. The Hebrew word is shazon, which most directly translated is either, like most literally, is either vision or prophecy. It's one of those two English words, depending on what we mean by them. And in, in both cases, the key that unlocks that translation is that aspect of imagination. It's about trying to look ahead at something that doesn't exist yet, which is what the word imagination actually asks us to do. It asks us, asks us to picture something that doesn't exist in the material. And the second part of that text is that it describes the willingness to look into those ideas about the future together and to work with others to agree about how we will proceed. It's sort of as a working group. In this case, the working group is a small nation. But there's lots of other examples of a working group. Communities. Friendships. And I, I felt like this wouldn't settle down because I felt like we needed to end with a... I wanted to end with a cautionary tale. A short one, but a contemporary one. And I wanted to do that because agreeing with others is powerful stuff. And it should be handled with communal wisdom and it should be handled in the context of a long view of the lessons of history, something that we'll touch on before our lunch together next week. I'm going to read us something that's about that just for us to muse about and speak about while we eat together. That is often deep and it is often difficult work. Now, I don't want to get lost in the weeds on this, but you you may have noticed uh, the story this week about a group in Saskatchewan led by this so-called Queen of Canada. Uh, that is threatening those who don't see things their way with public execution as an example of both that that story is lots of things but it is among other things a pretty excellent window in on the power of agreeing with others because one person saying that is now is just a quirky QAnon conspiracy theorist blathering online but when you get a dozen other or so people together and you occupy a school building in a small village in Saskatchewan and you threaten their children with public execution now we have a different story, don't we? Power of agreement, though. You don't, you don't get that moment in history without some other people in the building. So agreeing with others is powerful stuff, whether what you're agreeing about is a good thing, a bad thing, somewhere in the murky middle, wherever it lands, right? It's powerful. That's why I wanted to mention that story. Imagination, even imagination that has a relatively weak or no grip on reality or history, however we might assess these things. Either way, imagination is where it starts. So the very thing that I'm advocating for, you could say, that's how this story happened. They imagined something that didn't exist yet. They chose to see it as a good future, and now they're working toward it together. A wider culture does not share that vision. 
and also it crosses over into the ways that we've defined our collective behavior in ways that, that touch on legality, right? So now we're going to address that through law and its enforcement and so on, right? So this wider cultural response. But imagination is where it starts. Imagination is sort of like gravity. It's an isness. It's a category. It's a way of seeing what's not here yet. What we see and what we make of what we see, that's the next part. And that's why I wanted to, I wanted to end with this emphasis on two things. One is not giving up hope. Continuing to look to the future with imagination and go, how could this be better? To start there. But then not to neglect the absolute vital importance of dialogue and deliberation where it can gain some helpful shape and not to neglect the ways in which history and the collective wisdom of history reminds us over and over again that we need to not only not give up hope when we imagine the future, but when we work together to give it a discernible shape, in the end, if it does not have a shape about which we could use a word like love, it is more likely to exacerbate or just be a new version of the problem than it is to be something that makes the world better. This is one of the reasons, I think, why the wisdom of history takes the teachings of several different spiritual leaders, including the the Rabbi Jesus, on the matter of love and says, these are at the center. And they ask us for a difficult thing. They ask us to love those not like us. So if I have a vision of the future, which excludes everyone who doesn't see it exactly like I do, and if I take that vision of the future to the point where I say, unless you see it like I do and behave as I say you must, I will kill you, which is part of the story of the Queen of Canada and her crew, I'm not making the world better. Not the world. I I might be making the world that I imagined, but it's the size of me and those dozen people, or me and those, right? And and so this is where it gets interesting, complicated, and requires not giving up. Next week, I'll, I'll read you a short piece that, that Butler actually wrote for a magazine uh, fairly recently, early 2000s, um, on this matter of the importance of taking history into account in those conversations, which is quite fascinating. And, uh, and I think redolent with the sort of wisdom that we need when we engage the both fruitful and also potentially hazardous work of imagination. Right? All right. That's all I'm going to say about that for now, and thank you for, uh, for listening. And more than that, thank you for carrying away whatever you carry away from these things and continuing to take them into your space of imagination and creativity to see what good thing might be made of them, to use them as a catalyst, not as a stopping point. All right, peace, everybody.